Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to John chapter 5. And we're going to pick up verse 30. Recently, uh, back in April, on Easter Sunday, I preached 24 through 29. So you can go back and listen to that sermon online. And so uh, I picked up this week at verse 30 and went through 39. So John chapter 5 at verse 30. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy through your Son, Jesus. We thank you that you have inspired your word through the Spirit and that you have deposited it to your church as a good deposit. And we pray that as we study it, as it is preached this morning, that your word would go out and accomplish the purpose for which you have set it. Lord, we thank you and pray that you would give us attentive minds and hearts and that every one of the thoughts of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So remember our context for this passage. Jesus healed the crippled man and... Um, at, at that pool of Bethesda, and he commanded the man to pick up his pallet and walk. And the Jesus who, and the Jews who, who witnessed uh, this accused Jesus of, of working on the Sabbath, right? They accused Jesus of working on the Sabbath and commanding that the man work on the Sabbath as well by picking up that pallet and walk. Jesus says to them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Uh, in response to this statement, they rightly understand from him saying that, that, that Jesus is calling himself equal with God. Equal with God, his father, and they reject that testimony. They will not receive that testimony. And so we're in the middle of Jesus' response to these Jews. And in fact, uh, the section we're looking at today is Jesus telling them why they should repent and believe in him. He's giving them reasons why they should repent and believe in him, why they should do that 180-degree change from seeking to kill him to seeking to live their life in him. Jesus gives four evidences of why they should believe he is the promised Messiah. First, his Father in heaven has testified. Second, his forerunner, John the Baptist, has testified. Third, his miracles testify. And then fourth is his word 
testifies of him. All of these testify that he was the promised Messiah. So first off, verse 30, Jesus says this, and the mind boggles, right? Does your mind boggle reading this verse? I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Is that not a mind-boggling statement to you, that Jesus, who is God, says that he does nothing on his own initiative? Should be mind-boggling. Right? Now, remember that what Jesus had said earlier about himself, remember that he said, verse 19, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something that he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. And I said, when I preached that passage, that Jesus has always seen the Father working. Father, the Father's work has been perpetual, right? Upholding everything that comes to pass, upholding the world, the universe, everything created by his providence. And so he does the same, and Jesus does the same and does works of mercy as he did in healing that crippled man because it's the work that he's seen his father doing. He does likewise. He's unified with his father in every one of those works of mercy. Every one of the mercies that he's shown to you. Right? And as he sees, he does himself. That's what Jesus does. Now back to verse 30. He says something similar, but it seems to go beyond what he said previously about only doing what he sees his father doing. Before he said that he was imitating his father. Now he says something about what he can and cannot do. Jesus says something about what he can and cannot do. He says that he can do nothing on his own initiative. Jesus can't do anything on his own initiative. Why is that? Because, because he's never seeking his own will. He's always seeking the will of his Father. Right? He's always wanting to do what his Father has set out for him to do. His motive being is not to seek out his own independent will from that of his Father's will, but it is wholly to do what his Father desires for him to do. He is submitting himself to the Father. And the mind boggles, right? Is your, are you troubled by that? That God submits himself to God. That God the Son submits himself to his Father. The question that is, I mean, that question is hotly debated today. And, and the question is whether that submission to the Father, Jesus' submission to the Father, the Son of God's submission to the Father precedes the incarnation or only starts at the incarnation. That's hotly debated today. If you didn't know that, that's what the theologians are debating today. Does the submission of the Son only start at the incarnation or does it precede the incarnation? Even into eternity past. Now, it's a very complicated question that the theologians, again, are, are hotly debating right now. Those who say that Jesus' submission can only be said of his incarnation have declared victory. Right? That's what they led with. They didn't even lead with arguments. They just said, here's Nicene, Nicene Orthodoxy and we've won the debate. And then they made their arguments. Right? And they declared victory prematurely. There are others who are taking a more measured approach, and I would say uh, a less philosophical approach to the question and a more scriptural approach to the question of Jesus' submission to the Father. Both camps, whatever camp you're in, both camps say that the Father and the Son are equal. They're equal. They are equal as does, you know, that's what our catechism teaches us. And no one would refute that. As soon as you refute, as soon as you say they're unequal, 
you've become a heretic and you should be burned at the stake. Okay? Um, they are, our catechism says there are three persons in the Trinity and they are equal in power and glory. Right? Both camps teach that the Arians, the Arians, the early church heretic Arians, um, who said that there was a time when Jesus was not, so he is essentially a created being, both camps say that the Arians got it wrong. That can't be right. They've made God the Father and God the Son unequal. One is eternal, one is created. Okay. The Arians dispensed with the equality of the persons as they subordinated the Son to the Father because of substantial substance differences between the two persons. Along comes Athanasius in the 4th century. Athanasius was a great theologian and a courageous defender of the Orthodox Trinitarian faith. And he asserts that the Father and the Son's equality comes along with an asymmetry in order that reaches back beyond the incarnation. Okay, equality. In other words, Athanasius taught that there was equality and order within the Trinity. Equality and order. Equality and order. Remember those two words, equality and order. That order derives from their relations to one another, the Father and the Son. Okay? Even the Spirit's relationship to the Son and the Father, right? The Spirit proceeds from both Father and Son, and that means something, right? The Son doesn't proceed from the Father. The Son is begotten of the Father, right? But the, so all of that means something. And there is only one Father, there is only one Son, and fatherhood is defined in relationship to sonship and vice versa. Now, stick with me here. I'm trying to explain what I understand of this as best I can because this is the scripture that God has given us this morning. I can do nothing of my own initiative. There's a theologian, Stephen Boyer, who writes on this debate about submission of the Son to the Father. And he says this, Athanasius goes out of his way to explain what Jesus' statement as the Status as the eternal Son involves. The likeness of Son to Father means that Jesus has eternally whatever he has from his Father. And the dependence of Son on Father means that Jesus has from the Father whatever he has eternally. Of course, this ordered relation does not entail that the Son is less than the Father. On the contrary, it demonstrates conclusively the Son's natural likeness and propriety towards the Father. Here is an affirmation of equality that rather than relativizing the order between the Father and Son is actually built upon the order of Father and Son. The Son receives from the Father and receives from the Father always precisely because He is co-essential Son of the Father. right? Because they are always this. And the Son is begotten of the Father. They are equal. The, Father is the, the Son is the image of the invisible God. The Son is the image of the Father. They are, they, are, um, they are equal, right? What one does, the other does. And yet, there's order. Now, what we can't get through our heads in an egalitarian age is that there can be equality with order. That's what we just reject, right? We just say, no, 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 we all have to be equal, we all have to be on the same playing field. I mean, this, this, this is a worldview in our culture right now, right? Everything has to be absolutely e equal. If you haven't read Harrison Bergeron, you should go read Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut. He writes uh, about the future, as he always does, in predictions, and predictions, and the... Anybody who has abilities like a dancer in that day and age down the road when they figured out radical egalitarianism, the dancers have to wear weights on their arms and their legs. 
so that they're no longer able to dance, to make everybody equal, to make the dancers equal to the non-dancers, right? And that's what everybody thinks today, that, that, that you can't have equality and order. You can't have those two things, but the Trinity is that. And that's why you can have it. And that's why it's written on this, this place we live and written into the world. Now, think about those Arians who asserted that if the Father and the Son were equal, that would make them brothers. Right? That's what the Arians used to say. They would say, well, if they're equal, they're brothers. What's this Father and Son stuff? And we say, no, no, no. Read Scripture. Father and the Son are called the Father and the Son. And that's not a mistranslation of the Greek or Hebrew, right? Father is Father, Son is Son. Right? And, and no, no, it's not brothers. And so they were so scandalized by that that they said, okay, they're not equal. We don't care about that. And the Son is created. The Father is, is the, the only God. And so to the Arians who, th- who asserted this brotherhood, if there is equality, right? Athanasius comes in and, and says this. If we said only that he, the son, was eternally with the father and not his son, their pretended scruple would have some plausibility. But if while we say that he is eternal, we also confess him to be the son from the father, How can he that is begotten be considered brother of him who begets? And if our faith is in father and son, what brotherhood is there between them? And how can the word be called brother of him whose word he is? For the father and the son were not generated from pre-existing origin, that he may account them brothers, but the father is the origin of the son and begat him. Eternally. Which, in other words, from eternity there has been equality and order in the Trinity. The Father begets, the Son is begotten eternally. The Son eternally comes from and is eternally dependent upon the Father, yet in a matter that in no way entails the Father's, the Son's being less than or inferior to the Father. There is no reason why, as, as do many today, we should connect dependence with inferiority or submission with inferiority. Right? The cause is not greater than the effect. The cause is not greater than the effect. Right? Now, this is a very delicate thing. And I, and, and I believe theologians and pastors, and better yet, pastor theologians, will continue to work on this until Jesus returns. Okay? It is, after all, the finite trying to understand the infinite. It is the human brain trying to articulate the incomprehensible God. What we know about God, we have been given in the Scripture, and I think it's important for you to understand something of this debate that is going on right now. One important thing to understand is that no matter how much modern theologians try to say that these things are easy, and there has been an absolute uniformity of theology in the church past, these folks are being too simplistic. And they are doing that because they want to declare victory before they have even entered the battlefield. They want to cherry pick history. So what I'm saying about verse 30 is that this undoubtedly applies to Christ's incarnation, where he is doing the will of his Father in his humiliation, but it also teaches us something about the in intra-Trinitarian relations and the threeness of the divine one. Okay? You should be excited about this. Seriously, you shouldn't be sleeping right now. This is your life and your faith. This is it. 
right? This is what distinguishes you from every cult in the world. Trinitarian theology. It is appropriate given Christ's voluntary condescension in the incarnation and the Father and the Son's eternal covenant relations that the Son should say He can do nothing on His own initiative. The Father speaks, the Son conveys the sentence. Right? The Father, He does not seek His own will, but the will of Him who sent Him. That's glorious. It's glorious humility. It's glorious order, right? The Father is the Father, the Son is the Son, and they are one God. So enough on that. Renton would have to take it from this point, not me. Right? He's also, Jesus here is also making an argument about why the Jews should believe that he was sent by the Father. One witness was never enough to establish the truth of a matter, right? There had to be two or three witnesses to establish the truth in the court. And Jesus says as much, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true, is not, and what he means by that is it's not that he's speaking untruth, it's that he's not establishing it as true, right? He can testify to himself and it's true. But it's not establishing the truth. There is another who testifies of me, he says, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. Now, who is Jesus speaking about in that verse? In verse 32. Some say he's speaking of John the Baptist, which he makes explicit in the next verse. Some others say he's speaking of his father. Verses 36 and 37, if you jump down, makes it clear he's speaking of his Father. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. And what did the, how, how or when did the Father do this? In times past. And every, uh, every time he called forth a prophet of old to testify about the coming of Christ. Right? All those Old Testament prophets were the Father speaking about his Son about his son who is coming. God continually has been about the work of testifying to his son. From Genesis 3.15, right? The head of the serpent being crushed by the head of the woman. To the explicit prophecies throughout the Old Testament, spread over thousands of years, God has constantly been saying, look to my son. He will be your salvation. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So all those ages past, God was speaking about his Son through those prophets. And then he sends his Son. And the Son speaks. Time and time again, God testifying to his Son. And the Jews rejected that testimony. They reject that testimony. Even, they were, they, even though they are the ones who had the temple, who had the scriptures, right? who had the prophets, who had all these incredible riches, they reject it. After accounting how God had spoken to Israelites in the past, Deacon Stephen summarizes, right? Deacon Stephen's sermon is... Him going through the history of how God the Father has spoken about His Son. And then at the end, He says this, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always, what? Resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of, of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become you who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it so deacon deacon stephen gets it pastor stephen let's call him time and time again god testifies time and time again god has testified to you time and time again god has called you to His Son. 
right? Will you continue to be stiff-necked? Will you continue to resist the riches that he would give you in his son? Now that testimony should be enough, right? How many thousands of years has God been testifying about the son of God redeeming his people? And yet there's more, right? There's this, this embarrassment of riches. That should be enough. But John the Baptist, who the Jews actually considered a prophet, Right? Matthew 14.5 says that. They, they considered him a prophet. He came right, and testified about Jesus. Verse 35 says that for a while, they even rejoiced in the light that John the Baptist brought. But no longer. No longer did they do that. Right? They were seeking to kill him. So the early chapters of the Gospel of John record John the Baptist's testimony. We've been through that. John the Baptist offered no ordinary testimony, but the testimony of the forerunner of the Lord. He was the MC that announced the incarnate Son of God to the world. Right? And, and there is something in verse 35 that I want to point out. It says, it says, He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in His light. Jesus, remember, is the light. John is but a lamp, right? The light that he gives forth is the light of Christ, but he's not the light himself. He's just a lamp, right? He's a lamp. It doesn't mean that his shining forth wasn't brilliant and bright, but it does emphasize a distinction between uh, that was made in the first chapters of, of, God, of John's gospel. Of John the Baptist, it says he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. He was a lamp. He was shining the light of Christ, and Christ was the actual light. Something else to notice in, this, in the passage is that Jesus used the past tense when speaking of John the Baptist. He was the lamp. Right? It's, it likely means that Herod had already done his wicked deed of presenting Salome with John the Baptist's head on a platter. That's likely taken place at this point. He's gone and he did his forerunning work. And God took him out through the whims of two women who wanted his head on a platter. His work was done, and God took him away. And though he spoke of Jesus as a prophet of God, and even a prophet they acknowledged, the Jews did not accept his testimony. No, not enough. There was another testimony, a greater testimony, it says, than even John's, and that the Jews had during the time of Christ. They had the testimony of the Father as seen in the miracles that Jesus performed. These works, it says, were given, by Jesus, given to Jesus by the Father. And those works clearly demonstrated that someone blessed of God, at the very least, was there. Right? These miracles could not be performed if God the Father had not ordained them. Nicodemus had said, no one can do these signs which you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus understood it. And at no point in any prophet's life was that more true than it was with the Son of God. Right? God had worked miracles through Elijah. He had worked miracles through Elisha, other prophets. But they were sinful men. In some sense, they, they were separated from God. There's a distance from them. Here was God the Son, the unblemished Lamb of God, the Holy One, in perfect communion with His Father, carrying out these works that His Father had given them to do with perfect obedience. And so, that's why there are so many miracles performed by Jesus. These miracles, though they attest to Jesus' relationship to His Father and they attest to Jesus' power, are not enough, get this, to bring about the faith of those who saw them. Right? They weren't enough to bring about the faith of those who saw them. The crippled man had been healed right before them, and their response, the response of the people was just nagging criticism of Jesus' Sabbath practices. They saw this man healed, and they began to nag him. Right? We like to think that many would be converted if they saw miracles. And we are so desperate to have that testimony that many, many ministries stage fake healings in order to have that testimony. Right? And I'm not discounting that 
that there are miracles today. But like these Jews, even were we to see the most amazing of miracles, we'd merely become miracle junkies and not Christians. That's what would happen. That's what would happen with us, right? This would be good fodder for uh, social media, these miracles, right? We, we could impress others with our knowledge of these miracles. We could, we could elevate what people think about us by sharing these miracles on social media, right? We'd crave more of the vibes we got when miracles were, were wrought than bow and worship before the one who performed the miracle, The miracles of Jesus are not, get this, as important as the words of Jesus. And that is the next testimony that is mentioned here. We read, And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures. Because you think that in them you have eternal life, it is these that testify about me, the scriptures. Now, there's a lot packed into those verses. First, how was it that the Father testified of Jesus? We've already said that it was through the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament sacrifices, all of which pointed to the coming Messiah. Now, the second sentence about the voice and form of God is interesting. We could take it as a statement about God the Father, and his ministry and essence. The Jews standing there had not heard an audible voice of the Father as had the Old Testament Jews at the foot of Sinai, which left them trembling and afraid. And because God is spirit, he has no form, he has no body. But there's another way to read these verses, and it would indicate that Jesus has, has quickly pivoted into rebuke. Right? They have God the Son speaking to them and standing before them in a human body. They have before them the image of the invisible God. And yet they have refused to listen and have refused to see his works for what they are. In this sense, Jesus is saying that they are not seeing what is right before their eyes. He is speaking and they stubbornly stop their ears. And all of that goes to show you that what was spoken to Nicodemus remains true through all the ages. Right? The Spirit must birth anew a person or they will not see anything for the, what reality it is. The Spirit must birth anew. They will not have spiritual eyes to see spiritual things. Miracles could happen before them. The very voice of God could shatter the silence in the middle of the night, but the heart would remain unmoved because that man is dead in his sins and trespasses. And so though he may see, he wouldn't see. Though he may hear, he wouldn't hear. Eclampadius, the theologian, Eclampadius. I have no idea if that's how you actually say his name. Eclampadius says, Scripture alone does not make a man any better, nor even preaching by itself, except by the Holy Spirit abiding. It is the peculiar office of the eternal word to supply testimony, but it is the Spirit of God alone that can make the heart of man assent. The Word of God is constantly pouring forth, right? But only the Spirit of God can make you hear it, understand it, see it. And yet, this also must be said, in every case, the responsibility of one's sins remains on one's head. Everyone who remains in their sins, not believing in Christ, has followed their own wicked hearts. They remain responsible, which is what Jesus says in verse 28. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. They did not have the word in their hearts, and the result is hardness toward the one who came to save them from their sins. Time and time again, we will see this in the Gospel of John. They should have known, having lived with the Scriptures their entire lives, they had, as verse 39 says, searched the Scriptures. 
because they thought that in them they had eternal life. They had been steeping in the scriptures, but had entirely missed the point of the scriptures. And the very object of the scriptures is standing before them in the flesh. The very object of everything written is standing there. And then Jesus says, it is these, the scriptures, that testify about me. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, we read about a couple guys who didn't believe, and then Jesus had a special lesson with them. Behold, two of them were going about that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were walking with each other, or they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached. This is after, after his death, resurrection. And began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? Uh-huh. And they stood still looking sad. It's just a wonderful scene, right? Jesus shows up. These two guys are sad. Jesus is like, what are you talking about? One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? <clears throat> and they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty indeed in word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us, went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Foolish people who have had that testimony of the Old Testament constantly and, and you just don't get it, right? Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses... And with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going further. But they urged him, saying, stay with us, for it's getting toward evening and the day is nearly over. So he went in to stay with them, and when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began to give it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, I love this statement, were not our hearts burning within us when he was speaking to us on the road while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Ah. Oh. And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered the eleven, those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. And they began to relate their experience on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. Oh, man. Every part of the Word of God is meant to teach us about Christ. Do you realize that? Every part of the Word of God. Do you try to make those connections when you're in the middle of the book of Exodus or Nehemiah or in the Psalms? That Psalm we read this morning, Jesus all over in it. It is about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. That's the only thing it's about. Right? When you're in the middle of 1 Kings, are you making connections? You should. 
From beginning to end, the scriptures are about Jesus Christ. So let me leave you with this simple exhortation after all of this. Read the Word. Read the Word of God. Read the Word regularly. Were you reading it this past week? Did you read God's Word this past week? Did you? Read God's Word. It testifies to you about Jesus Christ. Ryle says simple, regular reading of our Bibles is the grand secret of establishment in the faith. Right? Ignorance of the Scriptures is the root of all error. Calvin says, if we wish to obtain the knowledge of Christ, we must seek it from the Scriptures. For they who imagine whatever they choose concerning Christ will ultimately have nothing instead of him but a shadowy phantom. First, then, we ought to believe that Christ cannot be properly known in any other way than from the Scriptures. And if it be so, it follows that we ought to read the Scriptures with the express design of finding Christ in them. Whoever shall turn aside from this object, whoever doesn't read the Scriptures, though he may weary himself throughout his whole life in learning, will never attain the knowledge of the truth. For what wisdom can we have without the wisdom of God? You're seeking wisdom, brothers and sisters. I'm seeking wisdom in bad places. Anytime you read anything, you're seeking wisdom. Anytime you hear anything and begin to assimilate what it means, you're seeking wisdom. Are you seeking it first and foremost and continually from the Word of God? The ignorant, hard-hearted Jews rested on the fact that they were saved because they had read the Scriptures, but they did not know that they needed the object of the Scriptures Jesus' son, Jesus, the Father's son, Jesus, right? Do not be similar to them. It is not enough even to have a Bible in your home. It's not enough to have a Bible in your home and be conservative who hates everything progressive, right? It's not, it's not enough to just righteously hate everything wicked. You must have Jesus Christ. You must have you must search the Scriptures so that you may properly believe in Him for your salvation. He must be the object of your affections, right? You, you can't even just love the Bible. You've got to love the object of the Bible. You've got to love what, what the Bible is all about. That means continually being in it. That means continually studying it. That means your heart should burn. Like those men on the road to Emmaus, Right, Your heart should burn when you read the Word of God. I remember, um, I don't know how many years ago it was, but we determined, there used to be a cross hanging here in the sanctuary. I tremble to even bring it up again. <laughs> um, we took it down to reform our worship cause, because the, the elders and deacons were convinced that shouldn't have objects in worship. It's a simple interpretation of the second commandment. Okay, but I remember somebody saying to me after we did that, somebody said to me, you know, that cross got me through a whole lot. And right at that moment, I knew we did the right thing. Right, right at that moment, I was convinced that we did the right thing in taking down that cross because it was God who got him through all those things, not this cross. Right? It's not carrying around a Bible that will get you through many things. Right? It's believing and studying and getting to know and loving Jesus Christ who is the object of all of these scriptures. Right? It's God. It's about God. Right? And so, reading scripture will teach you will teach you that. We don't worship these printed things. We worship what they're about, which is Jesus Christ. Right? So be in the Word. If you, if you pick up 
pick up one of the, through the Bible in a year. The reading plan's right out there. Get it. Start on today's date. It'll be right in the middle of things. It doesn't matter. Just start. And do consistent reading. And when something strikes you, take it with you the rest of the day. Just mull it over. Chew on it. Think about it. Something in your reading. If that's too much, if you want to do through the Bible in six years, that's fine. Just do it regularly. Right? Take one verse with you as you go. But it will put your mind on things above and you, hopefully, it will fall into doxology. It will lead to worship. It will lead to thanksgiving. It will lead to prayer. It will lead to acts of devotion. It will lead to good works, but it will ultimately lead to doxology. Enough, let's pray. Our Father, we glorify your name. We thank you for your word. We thank you that in your word is eternal life. And Father, I pray that your spirit would work in us in such a way that when we are in your word, that our hearts would burn, our minds would, would be set on you. Father, that, um, that our affections would be alive and that, that we, would, we, we would be loving you as we read what you have said to us. Lord, we pray that we would take refuge in you, that taking refuge in you, we would never be ashamed. Father, that we would loudly pronounce to a world that is, that in a, and to a wicked and perverse generation that we are Jesus, we are Christ, we are yours. And I pray that we would never be ashamed, that we would not be ashamed of your gospel because it's your power. Father, we pray that, that when we are caught in the jaws of the wicked, that you would give us calm, that you would give us peace. Father, that we would trust in you, that we would know that you have ordained all things that come to pass and that, that even when we are in the jaws of the wicked, you are disciplining us, that we might be more like your son, Jesus. And Father, I pray... I pray that you would, you would help us. We are so weak and so lack discipline that we can go months, we can go years without even opening your Bible to read it devotionally. Lord, forgive us for this. Forgive us for neglecting your word, but more so for having hearts that are so cold that we don't, we, we just, don't feel the need to hear from you. To, to worship you. And so, Father, we, we wonder why we're all on antidepressants. We wonder why we're so confused. We wonder why we're so blown about by every wind of doctrine. And it's so clear why that is the case. Father, we have not worshiped you. We have not bowed before you and been led in that devotion by your word. Lord, we thank you that, that you have you've made it so that we sit under the preaching of your word. But Father, I, I pray privately that we would be faithful. Faithful to read. Faithful to study. And I pray that it would not be <laughs> even if it starts as duty, that it would become that it would become what we can't resist. It would become our joy each day. I pray that we would stop being lazy, that we would wake up early, that we would go to bed early so that we might spend time away from other people and with you, as Jesus did, who would leave the multitudes behind and go up on a hill to pray. Father, I pray that we would, we would not fear solitude because it's not solitude, it is fellowship with you. 
and pray, Father, that you would, you would create this desire in us. And Father, I pray that it would lead to our sanctification, that it would lead to our growth and holiness, that it would lead to our joy in worship. I pray that it would lead to us being able to defeat the depression that we fall into. I pray that it would lead us to, to when trials come along, to, to not, be, not be shaken to our core, but to stand tall and to endure. Or do this by your Spirit in us. And Father, we pray for a revival of the preaching of your Word in churches. Father, we pray that those who, who get into the pulpit and preach themselves would be silenced. And that your word would go forth from your pulpits. Father, I pray that you would do this for your glory, that you would do it for the sake of the nations. Father, that all authority that has been given to Jesus would just ring forth from the pulpits of your churches in this land, around the world, Father. Father, we pray that, I pray that you would bless your people in Trinity. I pray that you would heal their diseases. I pray that you would give them strength to combat the flaming arrows of the devil, that they would do so by picking up the sword of the Spirit. Father, I pray that we would not, I pray that, that we would be, um, good ambassadors of Jesus Christ, that we would not be ashamed to proclaim his name in any context, whether that's in the halls of government, whether that's at the university, whether that's with our neighbors, whether that's in the grocery store or in our families, Father, that we would not be ashamed of Jesus. Lord, help us in this. May your name be praised. May we grow in you, by your Spirit working in the Word. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.